In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the fifth Sunday of Lent, the last of the regular Sundays of Lent. Next Sunday will still be part of Lent, but it will be Palm Sunday, so it kind of has its own place in the Lenten season. This is the last of our kind of regular participation in our Lenten study of self-examination and of repentance, our focus on almsgiving prayer and the reading of Scripture in a way that circumcises our hearts, that uh, removes that uh, dead flesh from us so that we can be focused upon the will of God. And we turn to Isaiah, to uh, this prophet who uh, teaches us and shows us uh, how it is that we're going to expect this new life that we get from the Lord in salvation. You remember that the prophet Isaiah is uh, teaching about 750 years before Christ. He's primarily warning the northern kingdom of Israel against their own uh, falling away from the Lord. They're falling away from lives of righteousness and they're falling into uh, idol worship and other profane things. And he's warning them that uh, the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to be allowed to uh, attack them and take away uh, that promise of Uh, the holy land, that promise of uh, their dwelling in peace in this land of milk and honey. And so he warns them and he tells them that God will save them. But he tells them that the Lord is going to save them in a different way uh, than the way he saved them before. In, In chapter 43 here, he tells them, about the previous way that the Lord had saved them. And you remember that we've talked about uh, the way that the Lord has brought the nation of Israel up out of Egypt. Uh, He brings them out of uh, slavery to sin and death, and he brings them into the promised land, this land of milk and honey. And he refers to that here in verse 16. He says, "Um, The Lord has made a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. He's brought forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished. This is a reference, a poetic reference to the Egyptian army, right, that has been destroyed in the Red Sea. And the way that the Lord has led them in battle to be able to free themselves from Egypt. And he's led them into the promised land where they were going to, you know, sit under their vines, sit under their fig tree and enjoy in peace the fruit of their labors. He's saying that the Lord is going to save them again, but he's going to save them a different way. He says, remember not the former things. And of course, this is poetry. He's not saying don't tell the story of salvation anymore. He's saying the way that the Lord is going to save you next is not going to look like the way he saved you before. It isn't going to be this uh, warrior cry. It isn't going to be this military victory. It's going to be a different kind of salvation. He says, I'm doing a new thing. I'm making a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, which is really important. He's saying that we are going to be wilderness dwellers. We're going to be desert dwellers. Uh, The promise now isn't for the promised land, this land of milk and honey. And that is where we are at today. We are in the wilderness, aren't we? Aren't we in a place of temptation? Aren't we living in a place where all around us we're surrounded by, uh, by temptation and by um, you know, uh, profaneness, by uh, people who are not living according to the law of God? We're not living in a safe place. We're living in a place where we're constantly being attacked and provoked and tempted away from the Lord. That's the wilderness that we're in. And yet he promises that within that wilderness, he's going to give us what? He's going to give us rivers in the desert. He's going to give us water to drink. 
And the the water that he gives us, of course, is his own living water. He gives us his own Holy Spirit that we receive when we listen to the apostles, when we uh, listen to the apostolic teaching, when we understand the gospel, when we invite Christ into our hearts, uh, we receive that living water. We receive that spiritual nourishing so that we're able to be strong, so that we're able to follow the will of God, and so that we're able to bear fruit in the wilderness. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And so uh, this harkens us back now, this idea of giving water to bring about life to uh, the very beginning of Isaiah's book, where in chapter 5 he introduces this parable of the vineyard that in many ways Jesus is repeating and retelling, uh, but in a slightly different way. And in Isaiah chapter 5 he talks about how he's planted his people, he is the vineyard owner, and he's gathering fruit. His expectation is to gather fruit. He's provided this water, and he's going to bring about fruit and the fruit that he is bringing about is righteousness and goodness so this is what the lord is expecting when he gives us the holy spirit when he fills us in this wilderness with his living water the expectation is that we're going to bring forth righteous and godly living but then on top of that on top of that is that we give glory to god for that crop, for that fruit. He says, I have formed the people for myself that they might declare my praise. And it's this last piece where the Lord says, I did this, I'm the one that gathered you, I'm the one that formed you, I'm the one that watered you, I'm the one that taught you right, and so you praise me. This is a part that many times we miss as the people of God. We start to bear fruit in our lives. We start to get our lives together a little bit. We start to be able to manage our money appropriately. We start to be able to manage our household appropriately. We start to receive the benefits of righteous and godly living. We see a change in our lives. We see that uh, we're able to receive God's blessings. We're able able to, to understand His Word. And we see our lives be transformed. And then we look around at the rest of the world and we say, Boy, are they messing up. Aren't they stupid and foolish? And when we do that, we're saying that it's because of my righteousness, right? When we start taking that, that praise for ourselves, we're saying it's because of my righteousness. Look at the good that I receive from righteous living and look how, how stupid the rest of these people are. And that is to reject an understanding that it's God who does the forming and it's God who does the watering And it's to him that we must give praise. Jesus fills this out in his uh, parable of the tenant farmers in Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. In chapter 20, uh, we're already ahead of where we are in the, the Lenten season. You know, we're still getting ready for Jesus to triumphantly enter right on Palm Sunday. But in this portion of the gospel, Jesus has already entered the city of Jerusalem. They've already proclaimed Hosanna. He's already cleansed the temple. And he's standing in the temple courtyards. And he is talking now specifically to the religious elders. He's teaching uh, and talking specifically to the, the professional religious if you will. And he is directing this parable at them. 
So what does he say in this parable? He tells us this very simple parable that again, that we saw in Isaiah chapter 5. God is the owner of the vineyard. He is the one who has planted his people. He is the one who has planted the trees. It's, it's him who has taught goodness and righteousness. And he's the one that's given the water. And so he expects to receive the fruit. Notice that they're not lacking in bearing fruit. The parable isn't, they didn't have any fruit to give the servants. They had fruit. Again, what is that fruit? Righteousness and godly living according to the law. So the people had been planted in the promised land. They had been taught how to live according to the law. They were doing that to some degree. They had some, something that would make them distinct from those who were living around them. They had this godly and righteous living. What was left? What was left for them was to give praise to God for that. To say, it's, it's, it's God that's doing this. It's God that is doing this through my relationship with Him. I'm only an obedient servant. Instead, what did they want to do? They wanted to take praise for themselves. They wanted to look like they were wonderful and to set themselves apart from those around them. Look at these, these Gentiles. Look at these foolish, stupid people. Look at these evil people and their dirty lives. They're not clean and righteous like us. And so instead of giving God the glory for their righteousness, they took it upon themselves. And the prophets are doing what? They're continually coming to the people and say, you have nothing apart from God. He is the one that deserves all the praise and glory and they're saying, oh, we'd like to keep a little bit for ourselves. And we'd like to condemn the others as well. And so, of course, Jesus fulfills the prophets, and he fulfills it and points to himself here as the son that finally the vineyard owner sins, right? He says, finally, in verse 13, Luke chapter 20, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. I will send my beloved son. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is now the son who has come to receive what? He has come to receive the praise of God. Our duty now is to praise God for the godly, righteous living that he has taught us. It's not enough that we learn to live according to the law, the ways of God, but we have to give God the praise for it. And when he says, because you will not praise me, the beloved son, because you will not give God the praise, but you take that righteousness from yourself, this vineyard will be given to others. And he looks directly at the professional religious when he says this. He says, we will take what was given to you and it will be given to others. And they know exactly what Jesus is saying. They know exa exactly what he is saying, that what had been promised to the Jews would be given to the Gentiles. And what is their response to that? And Luke 20, chapter, verse 16, they say, surely not. Surely not. Surely God would not take those blessings and give them to another. But Jesus, to make it clear, what does he do in verse 17? He looks directly at them and he adds a second kind of parable. A figure of speech, a short metaphor of the cornerstone. So in order now to say how it is... That what had been promised to the Jews will be given to the Gentiles. He introduces the concept of the cornerstone. The cornerstone is essential in good building techniques. The cornerstone sits, as you might imagine, at the corner of two walls. And when two walls are going to be even, 
when they're going to be properly aligned so that one isn't higher than the other or leaning a different way than the other, they have to both rest on the cornerstone. And he says, I am that cornerstone, right? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And then we have two walls joined together on that cornerstone. St. Cyril of Alexandria says, and I hope you're with St. Cyril, I am. I think he gives a better explanation than any I've ever heard, that the two walls are Jew and Gentile. And that when both Jews and Gentiles are joined together on the cornerstone, on Jesus Christ, then there they will be safe. And what happens when the two walls are joined is that they support one another. Now not only are they supported on the cornerstone, but when the two walls are knit together, they're even... They support each other's weight. And what happens to the church when we forget our Jewish roots, when we forget that Christ is a Jew, when we forget the law and the prophets, when we forget this this ethnic truth of who our Lord and Savior is, we lose our understanding of how salvation has come to us. And if we lose that he will also bring salvation to the Gentiles and their response to his gospel. If we think that salvation is because of what our grandparents did, or because it's an outward sign, rather than inward change in faith, then that wall will also topple. So first we have to be founded upon Christ, founded upon his teaching, founded upon his life and sacrifice, joined together Jew and Gentile, But if we fall, the cornerstone itself will fall and we will be crushed. That is, his judgment will be upon us. Because we have been not willing to set him as our foundation, but we will stumble over him and he will fall upon us and crush us. That is, that there is consequences, consequences to our actions and our way of living. And of course, the professional religious response to this is, we're going to kill him. Because this is how people respond when we point out righteous living and the duty owed to God and they want to keep it for themselves. They turn immediately to violence. And so what do we do? How, how do we live in a way where we not only follow God's godly righteous teaching but then give him praise for that? That is explained to us in Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 3. And we start in Philippians chapter 3 at verse 7. But what we're missing here at the very beginning of this letter in chapter 3 is that Paul, when he talks about the law here, is talking about circumcision and the dietary laws. He's saying that if you think the sign of circumcision, the outward sign of circumcision is righteousness, you're confused. You're confused about how it is that God is leading you to live. The outward sign of circumcision is not going to mean anything to you. He says, everything else is loss. What does he say I count as loss? He's here talking about this outward sign of keeping the law. He's talking about circumcision. He's talking about dietary laws. He's talking about the dress codes. He's talking about all these outward signs, things that are supposed to show to other people I'm holy. He says all that is loss. He says the only thing, the only thing that will transform me is to know Jesus Christ. It's in knowing Him and in gaining Him to be found in Him. That means that I'm found living in Him that I will be saved. 
And verse 9 he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. See, he's talking again now to Isaiah 5 and 43 and to Luke's parable here of the tenants. He's saying, I don't have righteousness of my own that I can take credit for. I can't say, look at me and look how wonderful I am because everything that I have, I have found in Christ. It's to him that I give praise. And it's in his righteousness from God that what that depends on faith. What does that mean? Righteousness that depends on faith. That means that you and I aren't just memorizing the Ten Commandments and then doing these rote things. We're living in faith. What is faith? Faith is God saying, go and we go. Right? Abraham is the father of faith because the Lord said, go to the promised land, and he went. He said, sacrifice Isaac, and he went to sacrifice. He said, go and fight Sodom, and he went. Abraham is the father of faith because the Lord tells him to do something, and he does it. Another way of translating pistis faith is loyalty. What does it mean to be loyal? To be loyal is to say, I hear what you're saying, and I'm going to do it. He's saying that this righteousness depends on faith, this relationship, the Lord saying something and us doing it. He says something and we do it. Do you see how this is a relationship? This is a back and forth. This is a moment by moment, day by day relationship of knowing God and knowing the power of His resurrection. So he says, I know Him and the power of the resurrection. And he says that this is the goal that we're looking for. It's the resurrection of the body that we're hoping for. This is our goal. That we would be transformed, that we would have resurrected bodies. And he says we attain that, how? By sharing his sufferings. Yay! Wait a minute, where's the cheers? Come on everybody. We get to share in his sufferings. That's how we come into the life of resurrection. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. I know the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. This is why Lent and Palm Sunday and Good Friday are essential, are essential to our celebration of the resurrection at Easter. We can't celebrate the resurrection if we don't share in His sufferings and death. We can't split them apart. They are together. That by any means possible. And this is where St. Paul gets this, this quality of urgency that is so important to our faith. This urgency that he has. This pressing forward. This, this intensity that's so important. Right? He says that by any means possible. By any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And he has these, these three beautiful phrases, right? I press on, I strain forward, and I hold true. I press on, I strain forward, and I hold true. These are phrases of urgency, of necessity, of focus of laser-focused intensity, of dedication, of discipline. He's saying everything is pressing forward and attaining, sharing in his death, that I may have also his resurrection. And this is possible because he says, I don't have it yet. 
That's very interesting, isn't it? St. Paul's saying he doesn't have his salvation yet. He says, not that I have already attained it. He says, not that I have already attained it, but I press on. He says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. This doesn't belong to me yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. Pressing forward towards the goal of resurrection. And anything that would keep him from joining in the suffering and obtaining the resurrection, he says, that I'm going to easily give up. That I will easily cast away. So the board is set. The pieces are in place. It's a week till Palm Sunday. We will remember Christ as he enters the city of Jerusalem. As some of the people proclaim Hosanna, and some plot his murder and death, because they would keep the glory of God's righteousness for themselves. With which group will we stand? Will we run away in fear? Will we reject Christ? Will we beware of the mob? Will we stand with those in political power? Or will we be with his mother and a teenage disciple and stay at his feet and be faithful to him to the end?